0: I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You know, it turns out that even when you're in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. But if you really want to go incognito and you want to protect your privacy, then secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com gold, and you'll get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Well, inflation is the word of the day. More and more people are discussing inflation, corporate boardrooms. If you listen to some of these earnings calls, a lot of companies are bringing up the pervasive widespread cost increases that they're dealing with and the way they're going to offset the impact on their margins by raising prices to their customers. Individuals are talking about rising prices as they're dealing with price increases on a day-to-day basis. You know, just the other day, I got an email from the Homeowners Association for the condo that I have in Puerto Rico, letting us know what's going on with the chemicals to service the pools. Prices have recently doubled But what they're also warning us about is supply shortages throughout the United States for pool chemicals over the summer. Now, they're reassuring us that they've already stocked up and so that supply shouldn't be a concern, but it may have to be rationed at some point if they start running low. And this is despite the fact that prices have gone up. And I'm looking at price increases all over the place personally. In fact, as I'm recording the podcast Oil prices are now above $66 a barrel. Look at lumber, above $1,500 per thousand board feet. This is a new record high for the price of lumber. And again, it's not just lumber, it's not just oil. Commodity prices in general keep going up. Look at the ISM Services Index, which was released earlier this morning. And by the way, it was a miss. They were looking for April ISM service index to come out at 64.2, which would improve on the 63.7 from March. Instead, we went down. We went down to 62.7. So not only less than had been estimated, but less than the prior month, indicating that we are seeing a slowdown in that index, despite the fact that the economy is supposedly improving. But the big takeaway from the ISM is the prices paid components, the substantial and unprecedented increases in prices, and to simply dismiss what is happening as being transitory strains any credibility. It makes no sense for the Fed to be taking this position unless you actually understand why they're doing it. Because remember, When it comes to inflation, there's only two things the Fed can do, right? The Fed can admit that there's a problem and then do something about it, or they can pretend there's not a problem so that they don't have to do anything about it. And the stakes are very high because if they admit that inflation is a problem, well, they got to solve the problem. How do they solve the problem? Well, they got to raise interest rates. They got to shrink the balance sheet. But therein lies another problem. They can't simultaneously prop up the economy and then take the props away. The economy is being propped up on pillars of inflation. That's the only thing that we've got going is the inflation. So the Fed has to continue to provide inflation. It can't take it away. And you have the Biden administration with all these big goodies that it is going to deliver to the voters, all of these programs that are even making AOC blush if The Fed admits there's an inflation problem. We can't have any of those programs. The government has to cancel all the future stimulus plans. In fact, the government would have to take back the stimulus that have already been enacted because it can't be afforded. The only reason that we can have all the stimulus is if we also pretend that financing it is not inflationary, that we can print all this money to pay for all this government And we're not going to have an inflation problem. So once you understand the box that the Fed is in, now you understand why they have to dismiss inflation as being transitory, because they have to pretend that there's no problem to solve, because the only way they can keep printing all this money and enabling all these deficits is if they also maintain that it's not going to cause inflation. That's why whenever there's even a hint that anybody in the Fed or even In the Biden administration, if anybody says something that indicates that maybe there is an inflation problem or that maybe the Fed might have to do anything about that problem, the markets react. Because the other reason that the Fed can't do anything about inflation is because if they raise interest rates to fight inflation, the stock market crashes, the real estate market crashes, the bond market crashes. So the only thing they can really do Is pretend that there isn't an inflation problem, no matter how much real-world evidence exists to the contrary. In fact, look at what happened with the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, where Warren Buffett talked about the substantial inflation that they're seeing. Not, you know, a small amount of it, substantial. And he didn't refer to it as being transitory or temporary. He thinks we have an inflation problem that is here today. He's pointing out that all the companies that they're buying from are raising the prices that they charge and that Berkshire Hathaway is raising the prices that it charges to its customers. And all these price increases are being accepted by the customers on both ends. So this is an incipient inflation problem uh, that has nowhere to go but up. And more and more Americans are going to have to start accepting and dealing with the consequences of living in a highly inflationary environment. Of course, while Warren Buffett was correct regarding his observations about substantial inflation, he was wrong about the cause because he basically blamed all the inflation on the red hot economy. That's the way Buffett described the economy red hot. But a hot economy doesn't cause prices to go up. It's actually an ice cold economy that is the cause because the economy is so cold, the government is artificially heating it up with stimulus. So that is what's causing this substantial inflation. It's not the strong economy, it's the fact that we don't have a strong economy, we have a weak economy, and so the Fed is stimulating the weak economy by printing money to finance massive government spending. And that is responsible for the increasing prices, not the strength of the economy. It's actually the weakness of the economy that is the reason prices are going up, not its strength. And what do people do? Once Americans come to the realization that the things that they need are going to get more expensive in the future than they are today, well, what's the rational thing to do? Start stocking up, right? If you know you're going to need certain products and those products are just going to be more expensive in the future, well, why hold on to your cash to buy those products in the future when they're gonna be more expensive, just buy the stuff now that you're gonna need in six months, that you're gonna need in a year. So now when people go to the supermarket, they're not just gonna buy what they need now, they're gonna buy what they know they're gonna need six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, because why not spend the cash? I mean, obviously you can't just put the cash in the bank, you're not gonna earn any interest, but if you think about it from an investment perspective, any products that you're going to need, whether it's food or toiletries or cleansers or, you know, any that you that you buy for your household on a regular basis, but you use them up, right? And then you have to buy them again. If the prices are going to go up 10% a year, 20% a year, 30% a year, if you buy those goods in advance, that's basically like making a 10% or a 20% return on your investment. And if you assume that under no possible scenario will things get cheaper in the future, right? If you buy deodorant and maybe you use a can of deodorant or a roll or whatever you buy it, but if you go through one every three months, so you know you're gonna to need to buy another one and you know the price isn't gonna go down, Well, that's a real return. I mean, that can compare very favorably to the S&P 500, to the the return you might have on stocks where you have considerable risk. I mean, worst case scenario, you buy the deodorant in advance you're going to use it up anyway you had to buy it you just bought it sooner rather than later the only opportunity cost is the interest that you give up for leaving the cash in the bank or maybe you could have bought a stock with the money and taken greater risk I think more and more Americans are going to start to do the calculations and see that the best thing that they can invest in is consumer goods that don't perish have a ample supply of everything that you think you're going to need, but have it right now, you know, organized in, in your closets or organized down in your basement. And of course, as more and more people begin to understand this and they want to stock up, that puts additional upward pressure on prices because as soon as the goods are on the shelves... People are bringing them home. They're not just letting them sit there. And now people are in a competition to try to get the goods as quickly as they can before other people have them. And then you start to develop shortages. And the fear of potential shortages in the future is another reason to stock up. You know, as soon as I got the email about the potential shortage of pool chemicals, what am I thinking of? Hey, let me stock up, let me buy the chemicals I'll need. Next year and the year after that, let me just buy them now and store them because they're not going to go bad. So let me just start buying things in advance of needing them because I know that when I do need them, maybe they won't even be available. But I know for one thing, they're going to be a lot more expensive in the future than they are today. So let me buy them right now. In fact, that's also part of the the nonsense when you hear these politicians trying to tell us why we can't have deflation because they say if people think prices are going to fall, that they'll, they'll hold off on buying things until the future. They're not gonna hold off on buying the things that they need, but they're going to hold off on buying the things that they don't need. So yes, if I expect prices to be lower for pool chemicals in the future, I'm not going to stock up on the chemicals that I'm going to need a year from now, but I still have to buy the chemicals I need now because if I want to use my pool, I need the chemicals. I can't just say, well, I think chemicals will be cheaper in the future, so I'm just not going to buy any right now and I'm going to wait because I want to swim in the present. I don't want to just swim in the future, but what I will not do if I think prices are going to fall is I'm not going to buy things I don't need today until I do need them because then I might be able to take advantage of the lower prices. But the opposite is true. When consumers start anticipating higher prices, they will buy things now that they don't actually need. Because they, why wait until you need them when they are more expensive? And that helps create an inflationary spiral, which maybe picks up the velocity of money because as soon as people have money, they want to turn it into stuff. They don't want to hold on to the money and try to turn it into stuff in the future when the stuff that they want to turn it into is a lot more expensive. So you do it now. This whole psychology is going to change. Americans are going to be in an inflationary mindset. You better buy it now. Because if you wait till later, it's going to cost you more and you might not even be able to get it. And once that mindset takes hold, it is very, very difficult for the government to change it, for the Federal Reserve to change it, which is why they've always said Don't let that inflation genie out of the bottle because it's very hard to reverse the psychology once that inflation expectation is ingrained in the psyche of consumers that I better buy the stuff that I may need in the future today because it's going to be more expensive. And especially too, if you look at a lot of US companies that have been following this just-in-time method of inventory management where you don't keep a lot of inventory, you just buy what you need when you need it Well, that works well when you have stable prices or when you have falling prices. But when you turn in an economy of high inflation, you can't do that. You have to start stockpiling your inventories now before the cost of replenishing them really goes up. So all this stuff is going to turn around and, and bite the consumer and bite the economy. And the only thing the government can do about it, the only thing the Federal Reserve can do about it is pretend that none of this exists. Because the scariest thing for the Fed is to have to admit that they have a problem. Because the minute they admit there's a problem, the market expects them to solve it, but they don't have a solution that doesn't create an even worse problem in their mind than the one that they would be trying to solve. In fact, take a look at what happened on Monday. Because on my podcast on Friday, I specifically spoke about the comments made by Dallas Fed Chair Robert Kaplan. On Friday, Kaplan talked about the fact that he was observing some imbalances in the economy and therefore we would have to have interest rates rising at some point um, as soon as appropriate or, or, or words to that effect in which he scared the market that interest rate hikes were going to come because of imbalances that were being created and obviously being created by all the deficit spending, all the money printing uh, necessary to monetize all those debts. And the markets sold off. And if you recall, the podcast that I recorded over the weekend, I said that it doesn't even matter what Robert Kaplan is saying. Look at what Chair Powell is saying, because Powell is the chairman and he's basically saying, He doesn't care what happens uh, to prices in 2021. He's already decided that any inflation is transitory and he's not going to worry about transitory inflation. And so I said the markets are not to worry about anything that Kaplan is saying that might lend them to believe that rate hikes are coming sooner than later because they're not. But obviously, I think the people at the Fed were a little worried at the way the markets reacted adversely to the Kaplan comments. So on the next possible day, I think it was Monday in the market, I'm watching an interview with Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkett. He's on CNBC basically doing damage control and walking back everything that Kaplan had to say.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups.
0: He's not worried at all about inflation. He was specifically asked, are you worried about inflation? And he said no. And his rationale for his lack of concern about inflation was in the labor force participation rate. So he's basically hanging his hat on the Phillips curve in that as long as we have unemployment, we don't have to worry about inflation, which is a bunch of nonsense. But what he's talking about is the fact that the labor force participation rate is still way below the level that it was before the pandemic. So according to Barkin, the Fed doesn't have to worry about inflation until all those people who left the labor force return. Because, see, he thinks inflation is a function of wages. And he thinks as long as we have all these workers on the bench who can come off the bench into the playing field, we have this big reserve of workers that can return to the workforce. And so wages won't have to go up as people uh, you know, come off the bench and, and, and get back into the game. Except there's several things that Barkin doesn't understand. Number one, a lot of those benched workers, they don't want to come off the bench. They like riding the bench. They don't want the stress of actually having to be in the game. They are very happy to not be in the game and to be enjoying a life of leisure sitting on that bench. And so in order to get those workers to get back into the field of play, they're going to have to be enticed there with a big uh, payment. Wages are going to have to rise to get those people to come off the unemployment rolls where they like being because the government has made it so lucrative to get back into the game you know where they, you know, they actually have to do some work and maybe, maybe they'll get hurt or something like that. So what he's saying doesn't even make sense if you understand the added cost. It's not like these guys, you know, want jobs and they're, they're not there. The jobs are there. They don't want them. I mean, at least not at the rate of pay that is currently being offered. So wages will have to go up a lot to get these guys off the bench, which flies in the face of what Barkin is saying. Because he's saying wages won't go up because we have all these unemployed workers. Well, the only way those unemployed workers are going to agree to take jobs is if it's at much higher wages. So we're going to get the increase in wages uh, that Barkin thinks the low labor force participation rate means we're not going to get. But the other factor that all these Keynesian economists still don't get is that prices are a function of supply as well as demand. And yes, when you have a lot of unemployed people, you may think that demand for goods and services goes down because these people don't have paychecks. Well, yes, they do. They're just getting paid from the government instead of their employers. So people who are unemployed are still able to spend money. They just don't do anything to earn the money. And that is the problem when it comes to inflation. Because prices, if that's how you're defining inflation, are a function of the supply of goods and the demand for goods. Well, unemployed people, thanks to lucrative unemployment benefits, still demand goods. In fact, the benefits are now so high that there are unemployed people who can now demand more goods and services than they were able to demand when they had jobs because their paychecks were smaller than their unemployment checks. But the difference is when they had jobs, they were adding goods and services into the economy. So they helped produce what they then consumed. But now if they're not working at all, they're not producing anything. And so if you have a lot of people who used to produce goods and services who are now not producing them, then you are decreasing the supply of goods and services while you are increasing the demand by printing more money for those very goods and services that the supply has just been diminished. So in other words, the argument that Barkin is making for why inflation won't be a problem is actually why the inflation problem is going to be a lot worse. All these people not in the labor force are making the problem worse because the supply of goods and services is reduced as a result of their absence. But now they're spending money. So he's kind of hanging his hat on the fact that, well, I'm not worried about inflation because we have all this unemployment. All that unemployment is actually going to make the inflation problem that he's not even worried about that much worse. You know, if you like to browse the internet in incognito mode, you have to understand that the only thing that gets hidden is your search history. So if you loan your laptop or your iPhone to somebody else, they can't see a history of the sites that you visited, but everything is still known by Google. Whatever you do in incognito mode doesn't stay in incognito mode. It's not like Vegas, whatever happens there, Google knows about it and has the data and it can do anything it wants with it. If you actually want to go incognito, meaning you want to be invisible, then you got to do something else. You got to get a VPN and the one I use is ExpressVPN. Because even in incognito mode, all of your online activity still gets tracked and the data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. And one of the key data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP address to identify you unique to that address, both you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. So every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other people and it can never be tracked back to you. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. But best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, your phone, a laptop, a smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. And an added benefit of ExpressVPN and one that really comes in handy for me living in Puerto Rico is there's a lot of content that's freely available in the 50 states that is restricted to Puerto Rico. The only reason I'm able to access that content is because I'm using ExpressVPN and my internet service provider thinks I'm in Miami and not in San Juan and therefore I gain access to websites and content. That would be denied to me if they knew I was trying to access that content from Puerto Rico. So if you really want to go incognito and truly protect your privacy, then secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com gold and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com gold, expressvpn.com gold. Well, in any event, so after those comments came out, those very dumbish comments on Monday, the markets were able to rally. Then what happened is Janet Yellen, right, who is no longer on the Federal Reserve, but she is the Secretary of the Treasury, she came out and made a very obvious admission. And all Janet Yellen basically said was that eventually interest rates were going to have to rise somewhat in response to all the stimulus spending, right? That's all she said, eventually and somewhat. I mean, how soon is eventually? Who knows? And they have to rise somewhat. I mean, that really is diminishing how much ultimately rates are going to have to rise. But she basically states the obvious. Yes, eventually rates are going to have to rise as if anybody believes that rates are never going to rise, that they're going to stay at zero, indefinitely nobody believes that but the minute Janet Yellen even mentioned the obvious fact that eventually rates are going to have to rise somewhat the market started to sell off stocks sold off gold sold off again why does gold sell off anytime the Fed talks about hey maybe we have inflation maybe we'll have to raise rates because everybody thinks that higher rates are going to be bad for gold and so the minute there's any indication that there may be a rate hike uh, some idiots start selling gold. But the markets did respond to this. And there was a lot of coverage of Janet Yellen's, again, very obvious comment that should not have amounted to anything that, yes, eventually rates are going to have to go up. Deal with it. Well, nobody wants to deal with it. So later that day, I think it was after the market closed, but Janet Yellen actually was forced to come back and walk back that statement, which really was nothing and she came back, though, to basically correct what she had stated earlier in that she is not worried about inflation. So she told the world, yes, I did say that eventually interest rates may have to go up, but I don't want anybody to get the impression that I think inflation is a problem. It's not a problem. Any increase in prices that we're seeing are merely transitory, and therefore the Federal Reserve is not going to have to raise interest rates to fight off an inflation problem that doesn't actually exist. And I think the reason that Yellen was forced to walk back her comment is obviously to the extent that she thinks that the stimulus spending may ultimately be the catalyst for higher rates is because that spending would be inflationary, because that would be the reason that the stimulus would necessitate an increase in rates is because the stimulus were to prove to be inflationary, which, of course, by definition, it is because the stimulus is being financed by inflation. So Janet Yellen then had to walk that back by saying, no, 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 we're not worried about inflation. And so we can keep having all the stimulus spending and we're not going to have to raise interest rates. And so that was refreshing for the markets because, again, the markets can't deal with the reality that rates may have to go up to fight inflation. And the Fed doesn't want the markets to have to deal with that reality. The Fed wants the markets living in a fantasy, right? Because that's the only reason that the markets are going up because nobody is factoring in reality. And the last thing the Fed wants to do is prick that bubble. And so the minute there's any indication that some air is coming out because maybe Janet Yellen says something that inadvertently lets some air come out. She's quickly back talking to the media to walk back the comments to reassure everybody. There is nothing to worry about. There is no inflation. Everything is transitory. And so you don't have to worry about a rate hike. So just keep on buying stocks and don't worry about anything, right? Don't worry about the risks. Uh, Just just keep on buying, keep on partying because the party's never going to end because the Federal Reserve is never going to take away the punch bowl. But even if that punch bowl is there indefinitely, as an investor, you have to recognize yourself that if you keep drinking that punch, it's toxic. What's in there will kill you. So you have to leave the party even though the Fed tries to keep it going. And the way you leave the party is by selling your dollars, selling your U.S. dollar-denominated assets and investing abroad, investing in foreign stocks, investing in natural resource companies, investing in companies that benefit from inflation, the oil stocks, the industrial metal stocks, the agriculture stocks. Invest in emerging markets, which are going to benefit from the weakness in the dollar that is going to be the result of all this inflation. After all, as you inflate the dollar, the dollar's purchasing power is being diminished. And as our creditors all around the world who are holding on to these dollars, they don't want to hold on to them. Again, look at the trade deficit numbers that came out yesterday. We got the trade deficit for March I already reported on the record merchandise trade deficit for March. We now got the total deficit, which includes our surplus in services. But the overall deficit hit a new all-time record high in March, $74.4 billion, about $400 million above the consensus estimate, which in and of itself would have been a new record. But this was an even bigger record. And it bested the $70.5 billion deficit for February, which was actually a slight revision down from the $71.1 billion that was originally reported uh, for the month of February. But remember, February is a short month, right? There's only 28 days there. So March, we have the full 31 days uh, and we set a new record. But the willingness of our trading partners to accept our paper dollars for their real goods is going to be diminishing substantially over time as more and more foreigners start to appreciate and understand the dollar's direction. You know, just like I said earlier that if American consumers understand that the cost of consumer goods is going to be going up in the future, they will try to buy the goods that they may need in the future, but buy them today before they get more expensive. Well, the opposite mindset is going to take place on the part of our trading partners because we are trading our IOUs for their goods and services, mainly goods, but to the extent that our trading partners are now worried about what those IOUs will buy in the future, if they start to realize that the U.S. dollar is going to keep losing value, then they're not going to be willing to hold on to those dollars to use in the future to buy stuff they're going to want to use them right now they're going to want to get rid of them the reason our trade deficit is sustainable is because foreigners are willing to hold on to those dollars and invest them in u.s treasuries or mortgage-backed securities or other denominated debt instruments so that they can use those ious in the future they can cash in the paper and buy some goods But if they begin to get worried about how much more expensive those goods are going to be, if they continue to wait to consume them, then they're going to want to consume them right now and they're not going to want to hold our dollars. And again, this is going to fuel this inflationary spiral that the Federal Reserve, for obvious political reasons, will never admit exists. I wanted to finish up the podcast, though, by talking a little bit about the estate tax and the elimination of the stepped up basis on death. There's a lot of talk about that now in the media and about what that implies for the future effective of state tax rate. Because the way it works right now, when somebody dies and heirs inherit their appreciated assets, the basis in those assets gets stepped up to the value on death and therefore none of the capital gains uh, is actually taxed. Instead, the people who inherit the assets pay the inheritance tax, which right now is 40%, which is higher than the current capital gains tax of 24%. So to the extent that the government gets to tax capital when it's inherited, they actually get more money than they would have had had the original owner of the capital, liquidated it during his lifetime and paid the capital gains tax. Because he didn't do that and left the appreciated assets to his heirs, the government actually gets more money. But the government is very greedy. They don't look at it as a win. They still look at it as a loss because they think they should have their cake and eat it too. They want to get the capital gains tax and the inheritance tax on the same assets. Well, the reality is to the extent that you eliminate the stepped-up basis and you leave what effectively amounts to maybe a 70 or 80% inheritance tax, which is really what this does. I mean, think about, let's say, a person starts a business from scratch and when he dies or she dies, it's worth $100 million. And the cost basis is zero because you started the, 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 the business with sweat equity and now it's worth $100 million when you die Under the stepped-up basis rule, uh, the heirs inherit the business with a $100 million valuation, but they still have an estate tax, which could be 40%. Assuming, you know, there's usually, there's an exemption, whatever that is, I forget 10 million-ish or something, and maybe that exemption was already satisfied because you inherited uh, some property, maybe some cash, a stock portfolio. So now you have this $100 million business that is fully subject to the 40% estate tax. If you also had to pay the capital gains tax, which they now want to increase to about 42.3%, if you had to pay the 42% and they're saying they want you to pay the capital gains tax when you inherit the assets, even if you don't sell the assets, you're just gonna be assessed the tax of the unrealized capital gains. And then on top of that, you've gotta pay the inheritance tax of another 40%. I mean, you're talking about 70 80% effective tax rates, and that's not even counting what the states may charge. So these are confiscatory levels of taxation. Nobody can leave an estate subject to that type of confiscatory taxation. So what is going to have to happen if this goes through is a lot of people who start businesses will liquidate those businesses while they're still alive. They won't be able to leave them to their children or their grandchildren because there won't be anything left because a lot of these businesses, if you inherit them, let's say somebody gets a business that's worth $100 million. You think they have 40, 50, 60 million in cash to pay the tax? The business could be the lion's share of the inheritance. The only way to raise the tax is to sell the business. In fact, that's been one of the reasons I think that Warren Buffett has been a big supporter of the inheritance tax is because it benefits Berkshire Hathaway because they get to buy up a lot of these businesses on the cheap that end up being liquidated to satisfy an estate tax liability. But all of this is the ultimate in cutting off your nose to spite your face because you are destroying the capital that leads to economic growth, the capital that leads to increased production of goods and services and the capital that provides employment opportunities for Americans. If businesses have to be liquidated to avoid the inheritance tax, then you're liquidating the seed court. And of course, it doesn't hurt the entrepreneur. So let's say somebody establishes a $100 billion business, but instead of leaving the business intact and passing it on to his children, he just sells it, and takes the money and spends it, and has a good time, uh, you know, before he dies, and just parties it up, and just squanders all of the wealth that he created. I mean, how is that benefiting society to see wealth squandered rather than preserved? Because people are not going to hand over all of their wealth to the government, they may be willing to hand it over to their children and their grandchildren, but they're certainly not going to give it to the government. So if your choice is blow the money and have a good time or let the government take it, well, people are going to blow the money and have a good time. And that is extremely short-sighted. America is not going to be anywhere near the leader of the world, if you can't start businesses here because you have to have a time horizon that is beyond your lifetime. It can't be, hey, whatever you start, you know, you got to finish the game before you die. You got this limited opportunity. And so don't think real long term because you're going to have to liquidate whatever you create. Fewer businesses are going to be started. And what you're going to be left with is more and more gigantic corporations right, that can endure, that don't have a death because they can live on in perpetuity, but you're going to have a less dynamic economy. You're going to have far less competition because you're going to destroy so many of the smaller and mid-sized companies that might otherwise have survived. And of course, when you do this, you have higher prices and you have fewer employment opportunities. So the biggest losers from these higher estate taxes are not necessarily the heirs, That are now going to inherit less money, but it's everybody else who would have benefited from those fortunes had they been left intact. Instead, they were dissipated, they were destroyed by government. And so the benefits that would have gone with that capital are also gone. You know, one thing I want to point out too, and not a lot of people understand this, but it shows you how corrupt the American judiciary really is and how culpable they are uh, in allowing our rights to have been so diminished over the decades is the way the estate tax came into being. I mean, first of all, if there wasn't an income tax, there never would have been an estate tax, right? Because the income tax came in in 1913 and the government didn't want some fortunes to escape the income tax by having them bequeathed to the heirs of wealthier people. So they they wanted to come up with an estate tax, but they could not just tax an estate because that would be a direct tax. See, the income tax was originally held to be unconstitutional because the court said you can't have a direct tax on income. And it was the same thing as a property tax, right? If you tax the rents on property, that's the same thing as taxing the property. You know, if you tax... Wages, that's the same thing as taxing the person who earns the wages. If you tax the dividends on stocks, well, that's the same thing as taxing the stocks themselves. And just because you're taxing the income derived from an asset doesn't mean that the tax is no longer a direct tax. And so they amended the Constitution to say that, okay, we can tax income without regard to apportionment, right, as required by the Constitution. Well, they've never amended the Constitution to allow the government to tax estates or to tax gifts. The gift tax came out a little bit later. but here's how the government tried to get around the Constitution and the Supreme Court turned their back on the American public and allowed these unconstitutional direct taxes uh, to be to be upheld. What the government claims on the estate is that it is not a tax on the estate. No no no, they're saying it's a tax on the transfer of assets. And the government claimed that the ability to transfer your assets to somebody else was a privilege granted by the government and that the government was going to put an excise tax on the privilege of leaving property to your heirs. And the amount of the tax was going to be based on the size of the estate. But they're claiming we're not taxing the estate because that would make it a direct tax. No, no, no. We're taxing the privilege of bequeathing an estate. And we're going to measure the privilege tax based on the size of the estate. And the Supreme Court allowed this nonsense. They let the government get away with that ridiculous argument, which clearly is a way to try to do an end run around the Constitution and to levy a direct tax on estates by claiming they're taxing a privilege so that they can call it an excise. But the reality is it is not a privilege to leave your assets. To whoever you want. If you own an asset, it's your right to dispose of that asset in any way that you want. So if I own a piece of property and I want to will that piece of property to my children, it's my right to do that. In America, we have property rights. We don't have property privileges, but according to the Supreme Court, yes, we do. I mean, the Supreme Court in the United States, I guess, looked at America as if it was a giant kingdom, right? Where the crown owns all the property, and to the extent that anybody owns property, it's because the crown allows the privilege. And then when you die, instead of taking the property back that the crown may have granted to a citizen or to a noble, the king allows that citizen the privilege of passing on title to that property to their heirs. But that's not America. We don't have nobility. We don't have kings. We have free people who have property rights, right? It's the Bill of Rights. It's not the Bill of Privileges. Because if it's a privilege to give away your property, if the government has granted you the privilege, it can take away that privilege, which means the government can say, you can't give your property away to anybody. The government takes it all, right? What if the government says, when you die, everything you own reverts to the state? Would that be constitutional? Well, according to the Supreme Court, it is. Because according to the Supreme Court, giving your property to your heirs is a privilege granted to you by the government. And any privilege that the government can give you the government could take away so when they validated the constitutionality because this inheritance tax when it was originally passed there was a supreme court case because whoever inherited money said no this is unconstitutional this is a direct tax it's not a portion that it went all the way up to the supreme court and the supreme court bought this nonsense argument that it's a tax on a privilege well it's not but that one decision basically destroyed all of the property rights in the United States. And that's what planted the seeds for the gift tax. Because, you know, a lot of people in order to avoid the estate tax, well, if you're gonna tax my estate, well, I'm just gonna start giving away my assets while I'm still alive, right? And then you won't have an estate to tax. So then the government came in and said, oh, we're gonna have a tax on gifts. But again, that would be a direct tax. You just can't tax a gift, right? Because you'd have to apportion it. So what they said is, no, we're not taxing the gift. We're taxing the the privilege of making a gift. We're taxing the privilege of transferring property to somebody else. And so the person who makes the gift pays the tax and the tax is a measurement of the privilege of giving away your property. But again, it is not a privilege to give away what you own. It is a right. Unless, of course, you don't have any property rights. You only have property privileges, which is exactly what the Supreme Court has ruled and basically turned the entire nation into a nation of serfs. We are not sovereign individuals. We don't own our own property. We only get to use the property to the extent that the government allows us to use it. And if they allow us to give it away, if they allow us to leave it to our children, but if they're allowing us to do it now, they don't have to allow us to do it in the future. And if giving away property that you own is a privilege, then you can argue that owning property is, in and of itself is a privilege. That the only reason that Americans are allowed to own property is by virtue of a privilege that is being granted to them by the US government. And again, Any privilege that the government gives you, they can legally withdraw, which means the Supreme Court has already set a precedent for the U.S. government to start seizing property. After all, they're not seizing anything. They're just revoking a privilege. You know, I really would like to see there's so much wealth in this country. There are a lot of people who stand to inherit a lot of money. Somebody should revisit this issue. The Supreme Court case that upheld the constitutionality of the estate tax is New York Trust Company versus Eisner. It's from 1921. The site is 256 US 345. Somebody ought to challenge this and get it back up to the Supreme Court to have that original Opinion reversed because it is bad precedent. And I don't care that the Supreme Court made a mistake in 1921. It's not too late to change that mistake and restore the character that we lost. Americans need to have property rights, not property privileges. We can't have a situation where Americans own property only at the pleasure of the government and that the government Is what enables you to give your property away. Because that means that we need to have a benevolent government that allows us to continue to use the property. Because if it's not our right, if I don't have the right to give away my property, if I don't have the right to uh, leave my property to my children, then I don't own the property. I just have this temporary privilege granted to me by the U.S. government and the U.S. government owns everything. And that is not the nation that the founders set to establish, a nation where the U.S. government owns everything, where the government is the master and the people are the servants. It's supposed to be the other way around. The people are supposed to be sovereign. The people are the masters. The government is the servant and your servant doesn't own your property and allow you to use it. That's what was happening during kingdoms. The reason that the Supreme Court felt boxed into allowing an obviously unconstitutional tax, this was all part of the populist movement. We were trying to soak the rich, tax the rich. And in the meantime, while we were soaking the rich and taxing the rich, We were destroying all of our rights and all of our freedoms that made America so unique and that made being an American so unique. And all of this comes back to bite the middle class, the working poor, much harder than it does the rich because they have the most to lose when it comes to living in a less productive economy. And I don't see how you can even make this argument. I I mean, to the extent that the Supreme Court is willing to overturn an obviously bad decision of the court and declare the estate tax unconstitutional, declare the gift tax unconstitutional. There's no way they're going to amend the constitutions to allow for these taxes. They're not going to get that kind of support. So that would be the way to get rid of these taxes. And the country would be substantially better as a result of the elimination of these taxes. In fact, look at Sweden. Sweden at one time had an estate tax. They eliminated it. The estate tax in Sweden is zero. And you have all these people on the left, like Bernie Sanders, they're in love with Sweden. They want to turn America into Sweden. They think Sweden has got the magic touch, right? They've got this perfect uh, democratic socialist economy. And if only America was more like Sweden, everything would be great. Well, with the when it comes to the estate tax I 100% agree with Bernie Sanders. America should be exactly like Sweden. And if all those enlightened liberals, if all those democratic socialists in Sweden, even if they understand that the best estate tax rate, the most optimal estate tax rate is zero, then how can we argue with the Swedes? Let's follow in their lead and eliminate the tax. But if our leaders won't do it, then our judiciary should do it for them because all we have to do is enforce the Constitution because the way the Constitution is written an unimportioned direct tax on estates and gifts is unconstitutional. All we have to do is get the Supreme Court to enforce the Constitution and then we can be relieved of the burden of paying for this tax, which is probably the single most destructive tax in the United States it raises the least amount of revenue relative to the amount of harm that it inflicts on the economy, meaning the amount of actual revenue raised by the estate tax is small, but the economic damage done by the estate tax is extremely large.